Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm John. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Exodus chapters 14 to 17. Now, before we get in, we want to encourage you to check out a really cool set of resources that John has put incredible amount of time into called Seeking Jesus. And if you look in the description below, you'll find a link. It's a whole series of videos about how you can find Jesus as you're studying the scriptures. Super, super valuable. So take the time, check it out. Thank you. And we appreciate you coming, John. He's a, he's a great colleague for many years um, who spent a lot of time studying not just the scriptures and the gospel, but the art of instruction and, and how to make resources freely available for as many people as possible. And it's just it's a privilege to have you on with us, John. Thanks, thanks for Glad thanks for taking the time. So today, uh, how how would you um, how would you set the stage for this particular lesson? We're going to cover Exodus chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. There, there's a lot happening here, and as far as the scriptural um, uh, impact on, say, the Book of Mormon or the New Testament. They keep coming back to these chapters frequently. So that, that's what I was going to say. If we were going to set the stage, this would be like the miracle. This is the one that you hear over and over, and it's not just in the Book of Mormon, but later in the Bible, over and over again, it will come back to the miracle of the Red Sea. So I think today's chapters are foundational. It's all about knowing God. We talked about early in Genesis, the creation story. God reveals himself. He wants us to know him, and then he wants us to know who we are. And this is this foundational story to know about the character of God, that he saves his people. So as you're reading the scriptures, look for this word, know. It, particularly here, it shows up. It's all about God revealing himself so people know who he is. And really, the scriptures are preserved so that we know who God is. So let's dive in. Uh, from last week, you remember we finished the Passover event and that, that tenth plague of Egypt that finally did the trick of, of helping Pharaoh say, uh, okay, get out of here, you leave. So what happens is Moses is now given the command to take the children of Israel, we're going to leave Egypt finally, and we're going to take them out into the wilderness. So we head east, right? And if you look at verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Remember last week's lesson where Joseph Smith makes the correction here that God isn't in the business of hardening people's hearts. Uh, so once again, the correction comes here that Pharaoh will harden his heart, and once again that happened when it was told him that the people had fled. He, he gets angry again, and he gathers his people together. Verse 7 says he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and the captains over every one of them, and with that hard heart, he goes out in verse 9 pursuing the children of Israel out to the Red Sea. And look, and look just briefly again at verse 4, the very ending. This is one of the key themes here. The Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. So this is what God wants you to hear from the story. He is God, and this whole story is to convince us of who he is. So God actually allows the situation to unfold so that his majesty of power can demonstrate his ability to save people in the most extreme circumstances. This is really dramatically amazing. I, I just love how this is all set up. Especially considering that the Egyptian people look to Pharaoh as a god in, in many ways, and and the real God saying, no, they're going to know who, who I am. He really is the Lord. I am really the Lord. So, help us out. Pick it up in, in verse 10. So, when, when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And I think it's, it's just, we know the story so much that we're like, oh yeah, we'll just keep going, don't worry, things are going to work out, but I do love to just sit for a moment and inhabit that. How do you feel if you're an Israelite and they're moving towards you? And you can see the armies, sore afraid. That's really actually a beautiful insight, John, because so often 
when we approach scripture, we already know the end of the story, so there's no, there's no feeling of anxiety, there's no feeling of, of tension in the air of, oh no, what's going to happen? We're fine. If but you're those, watching the movie The Ten Commandments, you're like, ah, don't worry, this is a piece of cake. I, I know how this ends, and it ends well for you. And, and yet, many of you watching today might be in the middle of something that feels like you have a Pharaoh's army descending on you, and you don't know the end of your story. And so then it becomes an invitation for us to come to know God as well, to say, I, I can put my full trust in the hands of the being who holds worlds without number in his hand. There, there's nowhere I would rather have my life be than in, than in his care. So that's a great insight, John. Thank you. And I love this. We keep going. So if you look at 11 through 14, you hear three different voices, the Israelites, Moses, and the Lord. So they're all seeing the same thing, the Egyptians coming, and the Israelites say in verse 11, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone. It would be better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And I think sometimes I felt that way, kind of like what you're talking about. When, when my back is to the wall and I don't see how things end, I'm like, oh, why did I do this? Why did I follow this prompting? You know, like, oh, it would have been better to That's... stay back in my comfort zone. Right. Now then Moses has a different perspective. He says, fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. And, and I like that perspective because oftentimes, it reminds me of uh, section 123, right? Cheerfully do all things in your power and then stand still. But it's interesting that the Lord actually has a different perspective. So sometimes it is the right thing to stand still and watch the Lord's power. But look at what the Lord says in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Wherefore Christ thou unto me, speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. And I think sometimes in our lives when we're in challenges, it's going to be, there's sometimes it's a stand still moment. Like verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You shall hold your peace. Sometimes you just say, I'm going to give this burden to the Lord. It's over. But sometimes the Lord says, nope, you got to go forward. You're in the middle of a battle and keep moving. And I love these three different perspectives. So if you were to diagram this, it's fascinating because you have these three options. The children of Israel saying, we, we'd rather just go back to Egypt, back into our slavery. At least we had our, our meals provided for us. We had some shelter. It was predictable. Moses is saying, no, stand still. And your idea of God saying move forward, well, the move forward takes me where? Into the water. Closer to the sea and into the water. Well, that's a leap of faith. That's a leap of faith. I love this phrase in verse 13, fear ye not. This actually is military language that shows up throughout the ancient Middle East and particularly in the Bible. So often this phrase is to call upon people to remember that God is the great divine warrior who will fight our battles for us. Therefore, we do not need to fear. So when you see this phrase, fear ye not, it often is in context of maybe a battle or some conflict where we're waiting for God to come and help us. And yet, as John pointed out, as we see here, that we all also have to act. We can't just stand around all the time. God usually expects us to do something even if it's to at least express faith in him, if we happen to be standing, but often it's to move forward and do something and show that we are actively involved in working out our salvation. Before we move too far past um, the story, I want to highlight, going back to Doctrine and Covenants, in section 8, verses 2 and 3, the Lord says, I will tell you in your mind yes. and in your heart by the Holy Ghost which will come upon you, and then this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, in a classic talk, Cast Not Away Your Confidence, he uses this exact passage and then says, why does the Lord use this as the classic example of Revelation? Why doesn't he say, behold, think of the first vision, or behold, remember Moses chapter 1? It's this moment. So this is Elder Holland. He said, first of all, Revelation almost always comes in response to a question usually an urgent question, not always but usually. In that sense, it does provide information, but it is urgently needed information, special information. Moses' challenge was how to get himself and the children of Israel out of this horrible predicament that they were in. There were chariots behind them, sand dunes on every side, and just a lot of water immediately ahead. He needed information, all right, 
what to do. But it wasn't a casual thing he was asking. In this case, it was literally a matter of life and death. You will need information, too, in matters of great consequence. But it is not likely that it will come unless you really want it urgently, faithfully, humbly. Moroni calls it seeking with real intent. If you can seek that way and stay in that mode, not much the adversary can counter with will dissuade you from a righteous path. You can hang on whatever the assault and the affliction because you have paid the price to figuratively at least see the face of God and live. Lesson number two is closely related to it. It is that in the process of revelation and making important decisions, fear almost always plays a destructive, sometimes paralyzing role. That's the second lesson of the spirit of revelation. After you've gotten the message, after you've paid the price to feel his love and hear the word of the Lord, go forward. Don't fear, don't vacillate, don't quibble, don't whine. You may, like Alma, going to Ammonihah, have to find a route that leads an unusual way. But that's exactly what the Lord is doing here for the children of Israel. Nobody's ever crossed the Red Sea this way, but so what? There's always a first time. With the spirit of revelation, dismiss your fears and wade in with both feet. In the words of Joseph Smith, brethren, and I would add sisters, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, on, on to the victory, close quote. The third lesson from the Lord's spirit of revelation in the miracle of crossing the Red Sea is that along with the illuminating revelation that points us toward a righteous purpose or duty, God will also provide the means and power to achieve that purpose. Trust in that eternal truth, please. If God has told you something is right, if something is indeed true for you, He will provide the way for you to accomplish it. That is true of joining the church. It is true of getting an education, of going on a mission, getting married, any of a hundred worthy tasks in your young lives. God's grace is sufficient. So, so in thinking about Moses and the children of Israel crossing through the Red Sea on dry ground and this being the classic example of Revelation, it's in response to a question. He had a need. God won't always just tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you need to know this. But if we're seeking with real intent, then the revelation comes. And then the message to go forward. Don't be afraid. Oftentimes, uh, at least in my own life, there have been times when I'm scared to move forward in the revelation. It seems like, oh, I don't think things are going to work out. It, it would be better to stay back. But no, the Lord says, go forward. And then the third lesson is that trust that God will provide a way. There are so many examples throughout Scripture, and this is one that is just repeated over and over again. When the Israelites' back was not to the wall, but to the sea, it seemed like there was no other way around it. God provided a way, and He will provide a way for you and for me to follow through in the revelation that He gives us. Let's tie this into the Abraham story. Remember that when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, and the ram is provided, and they call the place afterwards Jehovah Jireh, which literally means the Lord will provide. Mm. So again, the scriptures are full of these stories to convince all of us in the latter days, God will provide. And it must have been really difficult for Abraham, difficult for the children of Israel, and now for our day, we have difficult times. Are we going to trust like they did anciently? Will we, will we move forward, even in the face of fear? And if we do, future generations will look back and say, Wow, look at what God did to provide. And they might think it looked really easy. 
So, so as, a, as an add-on to that, sometimes the problem we face as mortals is we get in our mind uh, this, this image of what God is and what God should do for me because, after all, I deserve it, right? I've, I've paid my tithing this month and I, I'm fulfilling my calling and I've said my prayers and read my scriptures and I've gone to the temple, so I therefore deserve God will provide what I think he will provide. Well, sometimes that works out, but sometimes it doesn't. I think the qualifier here is that we trust that God will provide what is in our best interest, eternally speaking, and sometimes that matches up with what we want, but sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes the timing is a little off from what we would prefer. But I think that brings us back to this root word here, as you're seeking this revelation, is trust that when we put that in the hands of the Lord, that he will provide according to his own will and according to his own time what, we, what, what is actually in our best interest. And I think that's an important thing to, to remember as we move forward here. And, and if I could just chime in on the timing part of it, I, I noticed something, you guys have probably noticed this for a long time, but th this jumped out to me. Um, in verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. Probably because I watched the Ten Commandments movie. I just assumed that this happened in like 30 seconds. Boom, it's done. And we're ready to go. But, but here, it, it, in fact, if you keep reading through, it appears that this is taking at least eight and maybe more hours for this miracle to take place. And so imagine you're the Israelites with timing. It, it starts, the wind starts blowing like, oh, that's nice. But I think sometimes, yeah, God will provide, but it might not be exactly in our time frame. Sometimes it may, metaphorically speaking, take all night for the miracle to come. Here's, here's an interesting side note to this, this whole sequence of events, is the children of Israel had been in a group heading out to the sea from Egypt, and God had guided them in this pillar of fire guiding the way, going before their face to prepare the way for them, guiding them from, from location to location. Now at this point, in their hour of greatest need, here comes this attacking force, this army that's going to destroy them, so I love the fact that God, he's led them to the sea, now God changes location in verse 20, it says, and he came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud of, uh, it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. So, as John pointed out, this is going to be a long process. This miracle isn't, boom, instantaneous, you have the sea now cleared out and you go through. You have to wait upon the Lord to do his work, but he's He's gone before you, he's prepared the way, and now he's your rear ward, your rear guard. Let's actually write out rear ward briefly. And the main word here is ward. A ward is like a place of protection. So God puts himself as a ward or as a protector on the backside. But if you notice, how is the church organized today? We have stakes, like a stake of a tent that people are welcome into, and we give them protection in wards. So I love that God himself provides that ward. He is the rear ward, and we see this right here in this story of salvation. Don't you find it fascinating that the Lord is described here, his glory, his presence, his power being manifest in a variety of ways, not just parting the sea through, through his servant Moses, but that pillar of fire on one side and the cloud that becomes darkness on another, it's the same being, but to one group, it's darkness. They don't see anything, but to the other group, it's light, that he actually illuminates things in the darkness for them. I think that's fascinating how it's not God who's changing, it's our reaction to him, it's, it's our acceptance of him, it's, our, it's what we're looking for that's probably what you're going to find in, yeah. in the end. It reminds me of the last battle in Narnia, how some of the doors, you know, they can see or they can't see, and then you think about, well, how about in my life today? What are areas where maybe I look at something and see light and truth, but someone else might look at the same thing and see something different, or, or vice versa? Yeah. 
So as you, as you move forward, our invitation might be in this realm to, as you're approaching scripture and words of prophets, to, to look for the light rather than get caught up in, in trying to point out flaws or, or looking for darkness uh, and, and where people might disagree. Um, now, the great event occurs. The, the Red Sea, it's dry ground, Moses sends them down, they start through, and as they're going through, thinking, wow, this is, this is very unique, they get all to the other side, at which point the cloud lifts, Pharaoh's armies come down into the sea, and they're catching up, because they're on chariots, and the Lord removes the wheels of the chariots as part of the miracle, and then verse 26, the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And so, there, the waters returned, covered them up, and you, you finish this story in 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore, and Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And, and I know that we've, we've talked about this um, lots on Come Follow Me Insights, but the Lord there, capital letters, this is Jesus that we're talking about. So sometimes, you know, we're reading the Old Testament, it's like, oh, uh, what does this have to do with Jesus Christ? It has everything to do with it. Everything that we've been talking about is how Jesus Christ is interacting with Moses and the Israelites. And Jesus here, thus, we could say, we could rephrase verse 30, thus Jesus saved Israel. So powerful because you look at this, this incredible event, and they just saw the deliverance. God is mighty to save us, and, and he just delivered us, and he destroyed those who were trying to destroy us. He fought our battle for us. They recognized none of us moved that water. That, that wasn't us who did that. that. That was God. And you'll notice the way it described it there. They saw the great work, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. How long is that going to last, John? Well, not, it's going to be over by the end of chapter 15. <laughs> Here we come to what, what you might be really familiar with in a Book of Mormon context, that we, we've come to, to love these lessons from Helaman and 3rd Nephi on the pride cycle. And the reality is, is the, the Nephites didn't invent the pride cycle. This is, this is a very old... I, I, I would call it a, a human mortal condition that when everything's going great, it's easy to believe. When you're getting revelation, when God's delivering you, when you got that promotion or that raise or that job or got accepted to that school or your grandchildren are having great success, it's easy to, to see God's hand and God's goodness. Perhaps the true test of our discipleship moving forward on the covenant path isn't on the mountain peaks of revelation or of deliverance, but it's how do we treat God and how do we respond to God in the valleys of the shadow of death? Okay, so let's jump into chapter 15, and before we get to the to their first real difficulty in this long journey that's going to be 40 years before we're finished, um, Let's get the the beginning part of chapter 15, because it's, it's very triumphant. Yeah, there's a moment of celebration here. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength in my song. Notice verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 6, thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Now, Taylor, this is an area where you're more familiar than I am, but my understanding is that although the books of Moses, including Exodus, were written and edited, you know, perhaps over time, that this is one of the earliest sections of what we have today as the Bible. Scholars su suggest that this is actually one of the most ancient writings, biblical writings that we have. Yeah, when we look at the original Hebrew, the vocabulary and the way that the wording is set up is actually very, very ancient. And what's interesting about this, if we, if we want to really kind of get to the core of what ancient Israelites cared about, maybe what they sang about at their church meetings, if we could call it that. This is one of their most important hymns. 
And if you look carefully at the themes that are going on here and the witness and the testimony, we have a real sense of what did it mean religiously for an Israelite to be somebody of faith back at the time of Moses or for hundreds of years after. Now, we don't have this in the Book of Mormon, but I am confident that Lehi and Nephi would have been familiar with this, and I could imagine them maybe choosing from their hymn book that this, they would have sung this song because it's a song of deliverance. Now, you think about sacrament. We love to sing songs about Jesus saving us at the cross. Now, the ancient Israelites didn't have those songs. This may have been their sacrament song of being saved and seeing God's hand in their lives. So very, very powerful. And even though it was very ancient, it still resonates today. So as you read this on your own, look carefully of what are the themes, what do we learn about God and about his faithful people from this very, very ancient song? Maybe the most ancient piece of the Bible that we actually have. A couple of years ago, Karen Muelstein, who's been a guest on Come Follow Me Insights, he wrote an article called The Savior with a Sword. And he highlights these verses, among others, this idea, because again, like verse three, the Lord is a man of war. I bet if I were to ask you, hey, what's your most favorite title of the Savior? Like, not very many Latter-day Saints would say, man of war. You know, that, that's one of my most favorite things right. to think about. But there are really powerful insights that we can gain as we think about a Savior with the sword. You and I face huge problems in our lives. And so if you have a Savior with the sword, a conqueror, a man of war with you, that is such an encouraging point, like you were just saying about the hymn. It also tells us something about the Lord and his humility. Because, you know, think about all of this power that he has. One name that appears, uh, I, I believe, about 300 times in Scripture is the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of armies. So Jesus, as the Lord of armies, commander of thousands, is now going to come to a humble stable and be born. It shows you something about the character of Christ as well. And so when I think about our Red Seas in our life, or Isaiah talks about how the Lord defeats the Leviathan, right? What is your Leviathan, what is my Leviathan? And to know that Jesus is a man of war and he's a savior with the sword who can help us, can give, I think, great strength and peace in challenging moments. What I also love is that we get the God we really need. And for the ancient Israelites, they needed a man of war to fight and overcome the most powerful army on earth at that time. Later, they're going to get a, man, a, a Lord or a God who sustains them. We're going to see that. There's other forms of God that he comes to us and gives us what we need. And what I love that God, the God of the universe, he comes to us as we need him. And even though sometimes we don't always recognize when he does show up and what our real needs are. So it's helpful that we understand for the Israelites why this characteristic of God was so crucial to them. And actually, if you look carefully at the Book of Mormon, you'll see that also as well, mm -hmm. that Nephi it mattered a lot to them because they lived in a very difficult time where they needed God to protect them and fight their battles. So this, this huge rejoicing, this singing, this praising God concludes, and as with your life, we don't live on mountain peaks of Revelation, so the camp moves on, and three days later we come to a place called Marah uh, in verse 23, which means bitter. And the underlying Hebrew word mar literally means bitter, so they, they literally call this, this is the bitter place. So there in verse 24, the, they don't have any water to drink, the water's bitter, the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And, and there's going to be a solution to this problem, but I want to highlight, you don't have to go very far, look at chapter 16, verse 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses. We're going to see this problem over and over again, and one phrase that the Israelites sometimes use is, it would have been better if. If we hadn't have come here, it would have been better. And that reminds me of Laman and Lemuel in 1 Nephi chapter 17 when they say, you know, if only we had lived in Jerusalem and kept all of our father's stuff, then we would have been happy. And I kind of make fun of the Israelites and I make fun of Laman and Lemuel, but then I think, wait, it's kind of like me too, right? Well, if only I get this promotion, then I'll be happy. Or if only such and such a thing happens to a family member, then I'll be happy. The happiness never comes, and I think we can see that here with the Israelites, that there's going to be problem after problem and the Lord will fix it, but really it's an internal state of heart. The external things rise and fall, but happiness, in fact, I've been hearing this quote quite a bit recently, and you probably can paraphrase it better than I can, but it's from Elder President Nelson when he says, the joy in our lives depends not so much on what is happening to us, but what our focus is. And when our focus is on Christ, 
then we have the joy, even if the water's a little bitter. Perfect. Can I add to this? It's interesting, where's the pen? You mentioned Laman and Lemuel. We've talked about how the name is the lesson. It's very likely that Laman's name comes from two Semitic words that means not believing. Hmm. And this is the Israelites. They didn't believe that God could continuously save them. Laman is in the same boat. He did not believe that the God of the Old Testament could be his personal savior and take him out of any difficulty or trial. And so we actually have this name, Laman, identifying the problem that he has. And so at any point in our lives where we choose to not believe, we become a la'aman or a, a layman and not believing. And instead, we can be like Nephi or Moses who choose to believe and trust that God will always deliver his people. So as we now look at the solution to their problem, keep in mind that these patterns keep showing up. You know, when you go to the temple for the first time, it's – for many people, it's this amazing experience, but you have to – you have to go out into the wilderness. And what is the defining feature of the wilderness? It's wild, which means it's not tame, which means we don't have it all figured out and it's not in our control. There, there are things outside of our control which means we have to trust in God. And I love the fact that in verse 25, they're crying to Moses and what's his response in 25? He's like, well, let's, what does the Lord got to say about this? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And one thing that I thought was interesting as I was just kind of rereading this is that it's a tree. It's not a piece of grass. It's not a bush. How long did it take for this tree to grow? And I love that God was planning for this miracle years and years and years in advance. And I think there's a corollary in our own lives that you and I might be about to experience a miracle in our life that it's a tree. It's something that God planted years and years and years ago. He's prepared. He's not caught off guard by the fact that the people are have bitter water here. That's not a surprise, Lord. He had planned, and he's not surprised by whatever trials you and I are having. He's planning a way for you and me. I love that. And in the in the symbolic lens realm, this idea that all good things denote that there is a God and all things point to Christ and to his his ultimate sacrifice stop and think about the symbolism of a tree that's going to bring life. It's, it's a representation of the tree of life, which the tree of life is a representation of the love of God, Jesus Christ, being given to us, and it's a tree that had to give its life in order to take away death and bitterness from these people, to save them from, from the bitterness at, at Mara and to be able to preserve their life. Now, bringing that full circle to us, compare that now to what happens when we are given the opportunity to go to a sacrament table experience and we bring with us all of that bitterness of life. And what does he give us? He gives us remembering the lesson last week on the, the Passover, this bread that helps absorb the bitterness of life, and then he gives us a little cup of not bitter water. There's, there's no – it's not a bitter cup. He partook of the bitter cup so that we could have a sweet cup to wash that down. Now, look at verse 26 and see if you can see any connections with the sacrament prayers. And said, if – notice this is a conditional statement – if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and wilt do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Mm -hmm. In my mind, this is they, – they don't have the sacrament ordinance back in the Old Testament. Jesus introduces that in the New Testament, but to me, this is a beautiful foreshadowing for everything that Jesus is going to bring up to the people then and that we get to enjoy today. We mentioned earlier different titles of the Lord. This is another one that had not stood out to me until you just read it. Verse 26, the Lord that healeth thee. What a beautiful name. What a beautiful title. And then that finishes the chapter in verse 27, they came to Elam where there were 12 wells, wells of water 
and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamp there by the waters. So you get twelve and the seventy that provide this this life-giving uh, shelter from from the the wilderness that they're living in at that point. I I don't know that Moses was intending for it to be twelve and seventy because of what we have in our church today, but looking back through the historical lenses of time, it's nice from our perspective to, to see symbolically how God has provided for us 12 and 70 as well to give us life-giving sustenance and, and help along the way. Now, two more chapters. You, you, you get into chapter 16 and once again, we, we, we healed the waters of Mara, everything's great, everybody's recognizing God's goodness, but it's fleeting, it, it passed, and now we have a new problem. Chapter 16, they leave, and we begin in verse 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And back to your point earlier, what is their, what is it their been complaint? so much better. Why didn't we live in Egypt where there were flesh pots, right, and we had all this delicious food? It would have been amazing if only we'd stayed back. Which, John, I think brings, brings up a really, really important question for all of us to wrestle with, which is, what, what is really the purpose of life? I, I know we have some, some nice cliches that we use and some nice uh, sentences that we, we throw out and answer that question, but at the, at the end of the day, is life's purpose to figure out how to be as pain-free and food-filled and just take care of my basic needs, that's all I care about, that's why I'm here, or is it I really want to become more like God, which means mm. I might have to deal with some more difficult stuff than maybe my natural tendency would be comfortable with. Yeah, that's a great point. So, the, the Hebrew word here for murmuring is really significant because it actually is translated in other ways throughout the Bible. Um, it's used as lodging or remaining or dwelling in a, a variety of places throughout the Old Testament. So there's something going on around the murmuring. It's not simply complaining. It's being stuck in place, cementing yourself into circumstances and not imagining any way out and thinking that your present circumstances is your permanent future. So it's very interesting how that underlying word, we hear murmuring a lot, just complaining, but it really is much worse than this. It's worse than just complaining. It's choosing to believe that your present circumstances is all that your life has to offer, all that God has to offer, that you are lodging yourself, you're abiding, you're dwelling, you're remaining in circumstances, negative circumstances, complaining about it instead of trusting in God and having him help you move forward. Really, really powerful. And that's interesting, too, to see how the word murmuring appears differently in verse 7. So, in the morning, then shall you see the glory of the Lord, for that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we, Moses says, the leaders, that you murmur against us? And then he says, your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. So, sometimes when we have, you know, maybe these feelings of being stuck and we, we want to blame someone else, it's the Lord. And so, when we're murmuring against whatever thing, either a person or something in our lives, the Lord may hear that as a, a murmuring against him. Right, that's a, that interesting preposition. It's not simply murmuring, it's actually murmuring against, it's actually applied somewhere. And Moses appropriately points out, God has saved you, and if you have a problem with his salvation, you have a problem with God. And they're ironically saying, well, thanks but no thanks. If this is what God's salvation looks like, I'd rather go back and be Pharaoh's servant than be this. And so, once again, God has to continually be patient with them, kind of like God has to, has to continually patient. be patient with me yeah. and you and all of us, because we, we struggle with these things. So, we get the promise in here, in this chapter, that God is going to provide manna from heaven. This, this bread is going to rain down from heaven. So, is this like Pop-Tarts? What, what do you think <laughs> What do you think manna is really like? So, they, they describe it as these little seeds that they have to, like a grain, that they have to at times 
grind up. It, it gives a bigger description over here in verse 14. When the dew that lay was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. It's a little flake-like thing. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, it is manna, which is interesting. It is manna because the word manna in Hebrew is, what is it? It is, it is, what is it? What is it? <laughs> we don't encourage children to, to sit down to a meal provided by their parents and say, manna. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, they're so confused. What is it? And so Moses' response is, this is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. Um, so John, this is, this story is going to come up in the, the Gospel of John later on with some of Jesus' followers. So, so yeah, in John chapter 6, Jesus has performed a miracle. He's fed the thousands, and they come to him and say, they actually are quoting from Exodus 16. They say, hey, Moses in the wilderness, he gave manna. So what sign are you going to give us? What are you going to give to us, Jesus, to show that you are like Moses? And, and he did that for 40 years. Right. You gave us one lunch, so, one dinner. So, yeah. so where's our meal today? Right. And so Jesus' response, of course, is so powerful when he says, I am the bread of life, and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place in me. And we see that, as with so many other things, there's a type and a shadow in manna pointing us to Jesus Christ. And as we kind of maybe go into some of the details about the manna, that you have to gather it daily. It, it doesn't last, right? You and I need to choose Jesus daily. We partake of the bread of life daily. It doesn't, it's not enough that I had a powerful spiritual experience on my mission. You know, now I need to continue to come into the bread of life. I, I love the, the idea President uh, Russell M. Nelson shared in October 2021 General Conference when multiple times he used the word plead. I mm. plead with you to make time every day for God. It's, to me, it's this manna experience that, that spirituality and faith, they, they seem to have a shelf life attached to them. It's not like I can say, okay, this is the year I will now be spiritual and I will store up everything I need. I'll, I'll just devour scriptures. Like Joseph in Egypt. I'm going to have seven exactly. fat years and then And then uh, I can just relax and not worry about my spirituality for the next ten years because I've stored up so much. It's it, not like wheat. It doesn't work that way. I have to constantly be going and gathering that manna uh, from my sincere scripture study, tuning my ear to the prophets, having sincere connections with God through prayer. When, when have you said enough prayers? When, when, have, when have you reached the quota for scripture study to say, okay, now you don't need to study scriptures ever again? Right. It's it, not a checkbox. It's not a checkbox. It's kind of like, when have you had enough to eat that you won't need to eat again? Same principle, which, by the way, isn't it interesting how often and how nonchalantly sometimes we treat this, we'll sit down to a meal and we'll, we'll throw a prayer heavenward, I'm thankful for this food, which is wonderful, keep doing it, please, keep praying, thankful for this food, please bless it to nourish and strengthen my body. But how often do we actually sit down to this plate mm -hmm. and see it as food for the soul, as manna for the spirit, and give gratitude and thanks to God for providing this food for us just as much as the, the physical food sitting on our plate at the table, and then to ask him to help us to be able to be healthy and strong and to gain nourishment spiritually on this covenant path journey that we're engaged in. Um, I love I love this manna section because it's so relevant to, to almost everything we teach in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every, all of the actions that we encourage in the gospel of Jesus Christ, most of them need to be repeated over time. And, and if we were to go back to John chapter 6 when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I came down from heaven, notice that the response is, is similar to the Israelites in verse 41, John 6, 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Jesus therefore said unto them, murmur not among yourselves. And, and this idea that whether it's the bread that's the, you know, I don't know if it's frosted flakes or whatever the, whatever the manna is, or 
Jesus himself, there is a tendency to murmur, to feel like, oh, th this isn't exactly what I'm looking for. But the manna was what the people were looking for, and Jesus is what we are looking for. There you go. So intertextuality is, is basically how two texts relate to each other. And sometimes you see this in, in broad sweeps. For example, West Side Story has a lot of intertextuality with Romeo and Juliet. These two texts are connected. Within scripture, you'll often see a quote where, sometimes it could be an illusion, but sometimes it's a clear quote where a later prophet or apostle will say, as it was written, and then they'll quote from something that happened in the Old Testament, showing you that these two texts are related. And often when you see that, and then you dig a little deeper, you'll find more meaning, perhaps in both texts, than you otherwise would have. So, with that foundation, digging into this intertextuality between the manna and an yeah. additional insight from John 8, or so, John 6. So, we, we've been just doing some intertextuality with John chapter 6, let's do one with one that we know a little bit less, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So, so here the Lord gives some pretty specific examples with the manna. So Exodus chapter 16, verse 16, this is the thing which the Lord hath commanded, gather of it, the manna, every man according to his eating in omer, that's a, some kind of unit of measurement, for every man according to the number of your persons, take ye every man for them which are in his tent. Now notice in verse 17, the children of Israel did gather so and gathered some more and some less. So they're not, they don't actually have like a little measuring cup and they're getting the exact right amount. Some get a little more, some get a little less. Verse 18, and when they did meet it with an omer, so they get out the measuring cup, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. So the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's going to use this exact story as he's trying to raise funds for some people who are in financial need. And notice how he's going to quote these exact verses. Um, let's start in verse 13. As, he, as he's asking for money, he says in verse 13, I mean not that other men might be eased and ye be burdened, but by inequality, that now at this time of your abundance you may be a supply for their want that their abundance may also be a supply for your want, that there might be equality. As it is written, so that's our big key for intertextuality, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. So Paul's directly referring here to say, in terms of financial prosperity, all of you saints who have a lot, will you please give to those who have so little? So there can be an equality. And on another day, those who have little today, they may be in abundance and they will help you in your need. And I think that that's a lesson about the manna that we don't often yeah. remember, that there's an equality, and Paul wants the saints in his day, and the Lord wants the saints in our day to have that equality. So I love this insight, and sometimes we focus on financial resources, but it turns out we've all made covenants at baptism to be able to help build the kingdom of God, and we've all been given some gifts, some blessings from God. It may not be financial, but you have some form of resource in your life, some wealth that might be the gift of laughter, might the mm. gift of kindness or empathy. And God gave that to you so that you can share abundantly with those who may not have it. So we might say, yeah, well, those who have more money should share with those who have less. And that's a kind of easy example. But I invite all of us to do the work of saying, what gifts has God given me? And how can I give back to the world or just to those within my sphere of influence so that there is this equality? And it's just this beautiful principle that even Paul talks about it. There's no part of the body that doesn't need the rest of the body. And wherever you are in the body, share generously. You know, I love that. And it, it's fascinating how Paul addresses this issue in 2 Corinthians 8 that you've taken us to is that you have the poor and then you have the rich, whether it's in finan financial capacity or educational resources mm -hmm. or physical uh, shelter kinds of resources, whatever it may be, you have the poor and the rich. And we often get this idea that the poor are in desperate need of the rich to help them. All the way, Paul was teaching the Corinthians as he said, well, guess what? Tomorrow you're going to be the poor. You're, you're going to need help. And their need for you actually provides you with a need to be able to serve. If you want to become more like Christ, then you need the poor if you're rich. You need them because you have to be able to help them. It's kind of like work for the dead in the temples and our temple and family history work. They need us. 
but we need them. It's a mutual, it's not like one is looking down at the other saying, oh, I'll help you. It's we, there's an equality of need here, and we're all in desperate need of what heaven provides, this, this bread of life that, that is given to us through Christ, here symbolically in Exodus, but for us through sacrament and through all those tender mercies that the Lord pours down upon our heads, most of which I believe personally go completely unnoticed and unrecognized because we're just, we just chalk it up for, yeah, that was, that was good luck. Yeah. I've got a lot of skills. I'm, I'm amazing. Look how hard I've worked. I know we've got to move to chapter 17, but, but maybe before we leave chapter 16, we, we want to highlight the aspect of manna and the Sabbath day. Yes. That, in a sense, manna becomes a great object lesson of the importance of the Sabbath, that they gather, if they gather too much because they're trying to hoard manna, it stinks, it goes rotten, unless it's on the Sabbath, and then you can gather twice as much as normal, and that will hold through. What, what are your thoughts, Tyler, on manna as, the, as kind of a sign of the Sabbath? Yeah, it's a beautiful concept that if you think about the, the Ten Commandments are going to come up later, but the remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to focus on God on that day. I love this manna as a foreshadowing for what they're going to get later on from the commandments, this idea that don't always be focused on the physical needs. One day a week, focus on God, so consequently on the Friday, which for them was day six, before that seventh day Saturday, go and do extra work, gather the extra so that you can rest mm -hmm. and focus on God and his goodness and his deliverance on that Sabbath day. So for me, the manna is this beautiful foreshadowing of, of what's to come, this reminder that we need to strive to keep the Sabbath day holy and to focus on, on the work of God. Yeah, maybe looking forward to the Ten Commandments and then looking back to the creation and this pattern of resting. Yeah. So now we come to our last chapter in, in our scripture block today, chapter 17, and shocker, it, it begins with some problems and some murmuring. You, you probably didn't see that coming, probably didn't anticipate that, right? Uh, they're, they're complaining, bottom of verse 1, because there was no water for the people to drink. Huh, that's interesting. Yet again, there's this parched feeling, this, I can't sustain life without water. Um, I, I need to drink in order to keep living. Well, we, we recognize that so easily and so clearly for our physical body, but once again, how much do we recognize that for our spiritual well-being, that need for the, the living water? Back to John 6, this idea of not just the, the bread of life, but the, the living water that Christ offers to us through his infinite atonement and that we commemorate and we celebrate every week through sacrament with that bread and that water. Back to this group, verse 2, they chide with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? So the people thirsted there for water and the people murmured against Moses and said, once again, back to Egypt, why did you bring us here? It, it's going to keep going and going, this idea. Um, so Moses cried to the Lord, said, what shall I do unto this people that they be almost ready to stone me? They are so angry at me, the messenger. And so, and real quick, I, I kind of wonder if, if I think there's, we, we've been focusing on the Israelites complaining and how we may complain, but I think we can also perhaps either see ourselves as Moses in the story or think of President Nelson and other church leaders as Moses. You know, you may be in a leadership position sometime and have to make some hard decisions and feel like the people in my ward or in my young women's class or my Relief Society, whatever the situation is, they're ready to stone me. And Moses shows the example of turning to the Lord. And I wonder if sometimes you know, maybe we are complaining not because I don't have enough food or water, but maybe there's something... Uh, church policy or there's something and I start to complain about it and I can see church leaders turning to the Lord saying like, well, this isn't my policy, Lord, you know, like, I, I didn't make this up. Right. 
So it's it's that turn to the Lord. And I love that you see the Lord is in charge. Moses doesn't, you know, say, okay, well, guys, let's let's pull out our Franklin planners and, you know, draw some diagrams and figure some stuff out. Sometimes we do need to study things out in our minds, but ultimately the Lord is in charge of the camp of Israel, just like the Lord is in charge of the church today. So the solution, verse 6, is God tells him, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. Some of you love the song, Rock of Ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this, this is where it's, it's rooted, rock of ages cleft for me, and, and let this life-giving water come out. And so Moses called the place Massah and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So you just mentioned Rock of Ages, mm-hmm. and early Christians saw this exact passage as being directly connected as a foreshadowing of the water flowing from Christ's side. So Jesus taught that out of his belly would flow living waters. And if we just read a little bit more of the lyrics, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save me from wrath and make me pure. So, so, and I'll be honest, like this is one that as I'm kind of reading through, I don't always think about Jesus Christ, but it's another example of how much we see the Savior in the Old Testament, not only saving these people here, but a foreshadow, water out of the rock and water and blood coming from Christ's side, giving us that healing. Yeah, all things denote that there is a Christ. You, you can't, you can't go very far in the scriptures without seeing either direct or symbolic uh, pointers to, to what the Savior would ultimately do for us. So we, we finish this lesson with this it's, – it's a story that you're probably familiar with, um, but maybe haven't taken time often to dive deep into the details. What you have here, starting in verse 8, is, then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So you get this enemy that brings an army and is now going to fight against people who – John, how warrior trained, how, yeah. how battle ready are these the Israelites? These are the elite warriors. They've been Common. in 400 plus years of servitude. slavery and yeah. servitude. They, they might be strong, but they the, the Egyptians bricks, would but... not have taught them how to be good sword fighters or archers and bowmen or spears. Uh, the, the art of war would not have been known to this group. And now here comes a, a group of men who we would assume trained are war. trained as, as warriors, and we're in trouble. So verse 9, Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. The people have seen that rod do some pretty amazing things with the Red Sea, with the rock. um, They're trusting in this object and in Moses, and he's saying, I'll stand up on the hill. So verse 10, Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill." So you can get this image in your mind of Moses holding up his hand, and as his hand is held up with the rod held high, Israel prevails. But he gets tired. So verse 12, Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on one side and the other on the other side and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So we have the image of, uh, of I'm holding, holding it up here. <sighs> My arms get heavy, but I know there's a rock too. Ha- have a seat too. I'm, I'm <laughs> sitting down. You're his side. It, that, that imagery is so beautiful because you'll notice what John was doing with his hands. He was sustaining. He was raising his his arm, raising his hand to sustain what Moses was trying to do there. So when you're sitting in a, a conference or a sacrament meeting and you're asked to raise your hand sustain. to sustain somebody in a calling, that wasn't an invitation 
to look at them with disdain, but an invitation to sustain, an invitation to support, to encourage, to help motivate, and to, to help them recognize, hey, we're in this together, and I appreciate the fact that you're taking this role. How can I help you? How can I uphold this work that we're trying to accomplish, moving, moving this kingdom of God forward on the face of the earth? And that applies from the very top all the way down to any calling in the church that, that we are serving in these various levels and various capacities, the, the same principle applies. I think your primary president needs just as much mm -hmm. sustaining in what she is called to accomplish in her realm as the prophet of God is in his realm. But again, you have these wonderful counselors and then you have all of, all of the congregation raising hands to sustain. I, there's a tool that I know you've used. It's the Scripture Citation Index. You can find it either as an app or at the website scriptures.byu.edu. It's free, and, and what it does is it allows you to connect a scripture with what church leaders have said about it. And, and I looked up this uh, specific story right beforehand, and I found a quote that really touched me. Um, in 1986, shortly after becoming president of the church, President Benson quoted the same passage, and he said, I wish to convey my appreciation to all those who raised their hand in a covenant to the Lord to sustain me. I have felt the expression of your hearts and your commitment to the Lord as your hands pointed heavenward. We will be victorious as we hold up the arms of the Lord's anointed servants. So that same imagery here, President Benson alluded to as he was called to be president of the church. And, and I think that's one of the most powerful things that we can do is to sustain. We will be victorious as we hold up the arms, metaphorically, of the Lord's anointed servants. In verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. When you and I see the miracles in our lives, which we all have, we've all had hardships, we've also seen miracles. Do we write those down as a memorial and then pass them on to Joseph? Do we rehearse them in the ears of our children and grandchildren, the miracles that we've seen? And I think that's, that's a great lesson we sometimes glide we, by. We overlook, and I think Nephi would have some things to say about writing the things of my soul. So here's Joshua, who's going to be the next guy in charge, and Moses has commanded, write him in a book, make sure you pass these on to Joshua. Rehearse he it. needs to know this. You're going to rehearse this. Why? Well, Joshua's the prophet who's going to be called to go in and take over all the land of Canaan, and here was our very first battle. Joshua needs that that firm foundation for his own faith to be able to do the, the task that God has commanded for him. So I love that, not just – so we've talked about intertextuality, and in this case it's that, that intergenerational faith of, mm. of passing the baton to the next leaders and giving them what they need to be able to move forward trusting completely in God. Look at verse 15, Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, which if you look in your footnote tells you the Lord is my banner. It's that – that's my enzyme that I'm going to follow. That's the, the marching order. I'm, I'm with him. The, as you said earlier, John, the Lord of hosts, I want to I be in that army yeah. as we move forward. And then it closes with verse 16, for he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, there's surely opposition that you're facing out there um, in, in your life. And I love the fact that as you watch Moses and these – he's wor God's working with Moses and these people, and he's trying to help them grow line upon line, precept on precept. We're getting closer and closer and closer to the promised land, and that's a whole different set of stories down the road, but God's working with them just like he's working with us, and they don't get there in a week or even in a month. And so I think that's an important reminder as we close this lesson for today to recognize that discipleship and the covenant path is not an event. This is like manna, like the journey, this is an event, or this is a process, a long process of life. And as we continue faith with the Lord, 
we're going to get there. We will, we will make it to the promised land. Today we've only made it through the Red Sea and we've overcome a couple of challenges. But as we've talked about, sometimes the blessings don't happen the way we want. Sometimes they don't happen when we want. But when our focus is on Jesus Christ, and I love how you highlighted this, this name of the altar, when we really feel inside our hearts, the Lord is my banner, the Lord is victorious, I am choosing Jesus Christ, then we have joy in the journey. This is a great way to end this chapter because this word for banner actually also can be translated as ensign, mm -hmm. right? And this is the ensign that's put up in the latter days, the temple built to God. But really, it's all about Jesus. He is the ensign. He's the banner. He's who's lifted up. We look to him. He is the symbol of our salvation. And that's exactly what he did. He saved the Israelites again and again and again. Even after every single time they got saved, they murmured again. God is willing to put up with us, and he's willing to lead us along if we trust him. And what I love about these stories is that we can know that God is with us in our suffering, our trials, whatever Pharaoh's armies are coming against us, when we're thirsty, when we're weak, when we're hungry, God's with us. He is there as the Savior who will save us. He will fight our battles, and we can trust in that. That's the lesson of these stories. And hopefully we can write our own stories that future generations will look to and feel similarly inspired that they can also trust that God will fight their battles. That's wonderful. So as we, as we conclude, again, John, thank you for, for joining us today. What would be, in your mind, one of the, the most important overarching takeaways from, from all of these words on these pages, all of these concepts, all of these historical lessons, what would you hope that people would walk away with? Well, I think a central theme in, in each one of these chapters is Jesus Christ, that he's fighting our battles, he's helping, he's giving the courage, the strength to move forward, he's providing the manna, and it needs to be gathered daily. So if we think of the manna, the bread of life, and our efforts to connect with the Lord daily, I love how you quoted President Nelson earlier, I plead with you, do everything you can every day to connect with the Lord, and then we'll be blessed and, and we'll make it. It's wonderful. Thank you. So may the Lord bless you in your own journey, through your own wilderness, with your own struggles. That is our prayer, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved.